This morning from John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6. Jesus is speaking and says, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things to the world, so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Word of Life. So let me help you remember that this chapter 17 of John is part of a much larger section that actually begins back in the beginning of chapter 13. It's John's recording of the last night that Jesus is with His disciples. You'll remember, especially if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about that 13th chapter. John tells us Jesus is having supper with His disciples. And during the supper, He stands up, takes off His outer garment, wraps a towel around Himself, gets a basin of water, and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. When he is finished, he says to them, Do you know what I have done for you? I have set you an example that you should love one another as I have loved you. I give you a new commandment, he says. Love one another. And then he goes on to talk to them about the power and the presence that is coming. This Holy Spirit, the Advocate, the Counselor, the Comforter, the One that He's going to send even though He's going away. They will know that God is with them. And then we come to chapter 17. At the beginning of chapter 17, the audience changes from Jesus talking to the disciples to God. Jesus still talking, but no longer to the disciples, but to God. Now the disciples are still there. They're still going to hear this prayer, but from 
the first verse of 17, all the way through this chapter is one long prayer that Jesus is praying. You can hear it in the very first verse of the chapter as John records it. After Jesus had spoken these words, He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And the rest of this chapter is a prayer from Jesus. There is something disturbing to the disciples, though, in the prayer. He says it more than once. It's that He's going away. Now remember, He's just led them into Jerusalem. He is their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, their Messiah. He's the man. They're following Him. And now all of a sudden, they begin to realize that He is going away. That He's not going to be with them much longer. You hear it in the first part of verse 11 when Jesus prays, and now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. You hear it again in verse 13. Basically the next breath, Jesus says, but now I am coming to you. Jesus is going to be leaving. That He's going to be gone. I think that's probably when the panic began to strike their hearts. When the sense of danger began to creep into their minds. That the one that they're counting on, the one they have been following, is getting ready to leave them. He begins to pray about their protection. He seems to sense the danger, and so he begins to pray about their protection. And it would be easy to think that the thing he's going to pray is that they be protected from being arrested or crucified. But that's not what he prays about. He doesn't even mention those things. You heard it in verse 11. And now I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Then this, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. The first prayer is to protect them from disunity. Jesus is concerned that somehow they will not stay together. Now, They will not stay connected. He goes on with his prayer in verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost. And so he has a concern about them getting lost off the path of discipleship. He goes on in 13 to say more about that. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves, or some versions say among themselves. His second prayer petition is that they not be lost from the path of discipleship or lose this sense of community that's marked by joy in the community of Jesus' followers. He's concerned that they stay connected and united and experience the joy that they have known, that they have come to know with Him. 
And in verse 15, there's a third petition. Jesus goes on to pray, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Or some versions say just protect them from evil. Now remember, evil in John has to do with not being able to perceive the spiritual life going on all around us. Not being able to see that God is at work in the world and in our lives. And what happens, John suggests, is when we can't see or we don't believe or perceive that God is at work, then we focus more and more on this world and we begin to try to grasp more and more worldly power and wealth And if we're not careful, we completely lose sight of God and leave no room in our lives for God. So the third prayer is for the disciples to live in the world, but attend to the Spirit. To be attentive to what God is doing in their lives and among them as a community of followers of Jesus. So rather than praying about arrest or crucifixion, Jesus prays about unity and joy and vital spiritual life on behalf of the disciples. Elizabeth Green lives outside New York City a few miles. She writes about the days after 9-11-2001. She said after the attack on the Twin Towers that there was so much fear and stress amongst the people she was encountering all around that area. But she said she also noticed something else. That there was a greater sense of community even among strangers. She says she can't even count the number of times that in those days following 9-11 she would get a phone call or be in the line at the post office or the grocery store and someone she did not know would begin to tell her a story of someone who had died or someone who had been spared as they had shared this tragedy and in these days following were sharing with one another how they were going on and what they were celebrating or grieving. Elizabeth says one night the stress had just been so great that she and her sister and her daughter decided it would be fun to go bowling. So she said they all went to the bowling alley, but she said she made one mistake. She ignored those big prominent signs that said, be sure you don't go across the line from where you're bowling onto the bowling alley lane. The slippery part. She said as she was going to throw her ball one time, she walked right past that line and then tried to stop. She said, I fell spectacularly well. She said, I almost landed on my head as my feet went into the air. She said, I was stunned. I burst into tears. She said, my sister was right there to aid me, help me get up, and began to help me walk back to my seat. She said, as we were going back, the man in the next lane caught my eye and said, are you okay? And she said, even though she wasn't, she tried to give him a smile and a nod. She said, even as she sat there, she was fighting to hold it all together, to not just burst down and break down. She said, I was trying to stand tall and show that I was strong. 
She said, we continued to bowl a few minutes longer. And then the man and his family who were next to us finished their game and packed up and were ready to go. And just as they began to walk away, she said, he turned around and walked back over to me and sat down next to me and put his arm around me and said, I just wanted to make sure you are okay. Now that we know we are all one family. She said, all of a sudden, it was so easy to just rest her head on his shoulder and let those burdens go because she knew what he was talking about. Unity, joy, and a vital spiritual life and love of one another is what we lose when we fail to stay connected to Christ. We're back to that image that Jesus used in chapter 15 of this Gospel where He reminded the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. And that your life is only vital when you stay connected to the vine. But Jesus doesn't end His prayer there. He extends it beyond that night. Verse 17, He prays for the disciples Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Whenever we hear this word sanctify, it's good to remember it's part of the word family that also includes sacred or holy. It indicates something is set apart for God and God's purposes. Something set apart intentionally for God's work to be known in the world. Sanctify. John Wesley talked about this as sanctifying grace or the process of sanctification. He ends up concluding after his life and ministry and study of the Bible and writing theology that this idea of sanctification or being made whole by God in love is in fact the goal of the Christian life. He says, we know it's happening because it's marked by being filled up with the love of God and the love of neighbor. He says, when we are being filled with God's love, then we're transformed on the inside and we're able to embody or incarnate this divine love that we have received. It can flow through us out into the world. There's a lot in this passage about being in the world, but not of the world. Put in your outline, in the world is living for self. In the world, but not of the world, is living for God. Some of you will remember Dr. Roberta Bondi. She was our Barton Clinton Gordy lecturer a few years ago. She said the way to remember this, the way we can sum this up, is to say that what this learning process, this life of being a Christian is all about is learning to love as God loves. That's the process of sanctification or the experience of sanctifying grace. We have the salvation experience or justifying grace where we recognize that God loves us. In fact, God has sent Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior 
Some Christians stop there, but Wesley said, oh no, that's not what the Bible says. It says that's where we began, and then the rest of our lives, we're being sanctified. We're experiencing God's sanctifying grace where God's love continually changes us over and over evermore into the image and likeness of Christ until all that we do is motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. It's a lifelong journey. It requires that we are connected to Christ, that we remain connected to Christ so that not only do we continue to experience the love of God, but we are ready and able to share it with others. Do you know the name Anne Reeves Jarvis? Anne Reeves Jarvis? She's the woman who inspired Mother's Day. It was her daughter trying to honor her mother who worked tirelessly after Anne Reeves Jarvis' death to get this second Sunday of May designated as a national holiday. She worked and worked and wrote letters, and finally in 1914, a law was passed based on her efforts, and President Woodrow Wilson signed into law that the second Sunday of May would be designated as a national holiday where we would honor mothers. But you may not know, Anne Reeves Jarvis was a Methodist. She was a dedicated and a devoted Methodist her whole life. She was a wonderful person. She lived most of her life in West Virginia. In the best tradition of Methodism, she combined her faith with action as she organized in the early 1850s something she called the Mother's Day Work Clubs. She was pregnant with her sixth child. She was in her mid-twenties. She ended up having, birthing, 11 children. Only four survived to adulthood. The infant mortality rate was really high. And she began to want to know, what can we do as mothers to change this? And she began to study, and then she began to share what she learned about how important hydration was for infants and children. She also learned a good deal about sanitation and healthy habits and began to organize these mother's clubs to teach other women about hydration and sanitation to help keep these babies alive. She organized several in her hometown there in West Virginia, then across the county and across the state of West Virginia, all during the 1850s. As the 1860s were arriving, there was a great and divisive debate. It became the Civil War. Anne recommended to the mothers in the clubs that she had organized that they try to stay neutral in all this. In that, what she wanted them to do was to offer health care to the injured despite which side of the fighting they were on. They provided health care for so many injured during the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, she had become so well known, the public officials began to ask her to help build reconciliation to help the peace move further. So she thought about what she could do. She came up with an idea and then developed it over the next couple of years. She wanted to have a Mother's Friendship Day. 
Her idea was to invite mothers from both sides of the Civil War to come together for a rally. There would be music and a picnic and speeches. Finally, by 1868, despite the fact that so many weren't ready for a day of reconciliation, and in fact she received threats of violence even as she was planning this, but by 1868 she was able to bring it all together. And they had Mother's Friendship Day. She gave the keynote address that day. She talked about the importance of unity and peace and reconciliation and how important that was for our country to move forward. She was a leader in that part of the country, helping people overcome the great division during the Civil War that they had experienced. She continued to work on behalf of mothers and women. In 1873, she helped establish a Methodist church. It was in that church, three decades later, that the first Mother's Day was celebrated. Her daughter had continued to work to honor her mother and all mothers. And even before the national law was passed in 1908 in Andrews Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia, the first Mother's Day ceremony and celebration was held. Ann Reeves Jarvis had led the primary Sunday school department in that church for 25 years. I think Jarvis is an example of sanctification because she continued to grow and show her love for others throughout her life. I think she would understand this prayer that Jesus prayed about unity and joy and vital spiritual life. May we all know this experience of sanctification in our own lives, even today. Amen.